0: It's been a while, that we have the full cast of regulars back on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, Laura Johnston together again for a Monday discussion of the news. Let's start. Law changes and court rulings have kept the landscape changing for years now for how automatic cameras that give drivers speeding tickets operate. What is the current state of traffic cameras in Northeast Ohio, Layla?
1: Oh, there are a few things I hate more in life than traffic cameras. You get that terrible letter in the mail with a photo of your car on the road and then a fine for, I don't know, as much as 170 I wouldn't bucks. know. I never got one. Oh, well, well. Well. <laughs> <laughs> well, reporter Molly Walsh did a roundup of where we stand with these cameras and how many communities have them. And Molly found that Parma Walton Hills and Mayfield Village as well as Newburgh Heights and Lindale all use traffic cameras some are standalone operations others are used as handheld devices in tandem with a police officer Lindale is the worst this tiny blip on the map collected more than 1.3 million dollars in civil fines in just 7 months in 2021 from speed cameras. A lot of cities dropped their cameras after the Ohio Supreme Court upheld a 2019 law that reduced the amount of state dollars that went to any community using cameras. But for Lindale, that meant nothing because they got less than $5,000 from the state's local government fund. I mean, $5,000 probably doesn't even cover the cost of lens cleaner for their speed cameras. (laughs) So in 2021, Lindale had 20,619 camera tickets, and that's more than double the amount in Parma, which is much larger. They had 10,026 camera tickets from 12 cameras. Let me me
0: stop you here a second, too, because for people that aren't familiar with Lindale, it's eight blocks long by, what, two wide. It has 37 houses in it. It is a nothing, tiny little town that is only there to get... Ticket revenue. It it and there have been a million efforts to get rid of it. I mean, they, they 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 abolished their mayor's court so that they would have to go to par municipal court. There's law after law. There's another legislative effort trying to stop it. It shouldn't exist. I mean, when you compare it like you just did to Parma, which is a big city, and Lindale's given out more tickets. It it's just ridiculous that they're able to do this.
2: It- as far as I can tell, Lindale has like one street that comes off of Memphis this Road, it, you know, and it's like I have to drive it every time I go into the newsroom and it's like, OK, get ready, go down to 20 miles an hour. And it's it seems like most people who drive that road understand that and everybody's going that slow. But, yeah, if, if you're new to it, there's no way that you would by the time you realized it, you'd already be caught.
1: Yeah, because Lindale posts its cameras in this tricky little spot on the underpass that connects drivers from Lindale into neighboring Brooklyn, where 117th turns into Memphis Avenue. So you're cruising along in this 35 mile per hour zone. Then you come down this little hill where the speed Mm -hmm. limit arbitrarily drops to 25 miles an hour. And so you're picking up speed on that hill and they take your picture going 40 in a 25. It's total garbage. I mean, I laughed out loud when I read in the story about how their ticket revenue plummeted when the
2: Memphis Avenue yeah, when it was yeah.
1: closed, yeah. <laughs> no could,
2: there was no reason to use that <laughs> road anymore.
1: I know. So in Parma, they use these cameras mostly in school zones, which, in my opinion, that's legit. That's a legit safety purpose. Everyone knows where the school zones are. They're they're by the schools. Uh, So, you know, Illyria, they're in the process of installing cameras in some intersections, but they won't use them for tickets. This sounds more like those flock cameras where they're going to be uh, trying to find, you know, people who are have outstanding warrants and things like that or Amber alerts. And then in Mayfield, they have a camera accompanying police officers on I-271. They say that that has resulted in a 22 percent reduction in cars traveling over 85 miles an hour during rush hour. Yeah
0: and so. with Mayfield when they first announced it it sounded like it was a cash grab but they're losing their state money as a result of it and they do mm-hmm. seem pretty dedicated to making that stretcher road safer i mean it, mm-hmm. I, I i don't i think that they've actually been true to their mission they're trying to make that road safer they're willing to forego state revenue to give out the tickets, not all of which get paid, so that creates some red tape for them, and, and it's effective. That's a good use of the cameras, right? And, you know, the, the other nice thing about cameras is they're colorblind, so you can't say that the tickets are racially mm-hmm. profiled.
1: My question is, what, what if you don't pay these? If you Google that question, you get a whole bunch of random answers on Reddit or whatever. You know, some people say, oh, it might end up going to collections. It could affect your credit score. They could file a lawsuit against you. Well, do they do that? Is any of that true? Do these communities actually have contracts with collections agencies? Or do they just count on enough of us being suckers who will send in our money without any real legal threat compelling us to do it? We're working. But you broke the law. You broke the law and you were caught on camera breaking the law. Yeah. In, a, in an area where you're, the, 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 the reasonable speed limit is 35 miles an hour and they, they trick you into speeding and then they catch you and then they send you a ticket. We're work- that is what's happening in Lindale.
0: We're working on a story because we're getting notes from people that say they're getting letters from the attorney general's office, Dave Yost's office about 20 year old unpaid parking tickets and they're coming after them and threatening them. They don't even remember these tickets. So right, I, I right. suspect that if you don't pay the ticket, you're going to have trouble at some point down the road
1: uh but but you know what what is what's the reality of that does lyndale do they even want want to spend any of their money on collections when they're getting millions of people just you know millions of dollars just funneling in from people who are paying it willfully all right do they just write off the ones who are who are not paying you
0: heard it here folks Layla tassi chief law is gonna leave a move <laughs> lead a movement <laughs> you're listening to today in ohio Lawmakers across the nation are increasing the availability of vouchers to use tax dollars for private schools. Laura, what's on the horizon in Ohio?
2: Well, it depends who prevails, either the governor or the legislature or maybe neither. But Mike DeWine wants to increase the eligibility of vouchers for families up to 400% of the poverty level. That's about $100,000. Sorry, $111,000 for a family of four. That's up from the current $250,000 of poverty level. So that would be increasing a lot more vouchers here. Um, And then the legislature wants to do it a whole lot more. They want to pass what's called a backpack bill and basically let anybody take their school money wherever they go to school, even if they're being homeschooled, even if it's a charter school that doesn't follow the rules. And so these movements are following what's happened in Florida, Iowa, Utah, Arkansas, North North Dakota. They all passed bills this year. Indiana, Missouri, New Hampshire, and West Virginia uh, created universal vouchers, I believe, the year before. So I mean, there's a whole lot of movement for this, and there's a lot of reasons why. Um, COVID is one of them, but they say the public school system traps kids who don't thrive under it. And the competition is the best way for schools to perform their best. But the critics say they take this money from already underfunded public schools, which in Ohio, they're trying to fix the way we fund schools because it's been unconstitutional. And I didn't realize this till I read Laura Hancock's excellent story. The vouchers have racist origins because they started in the South when courts started to integrate school systems during the civil rights era. This was this loophole. Well, we'll just give you vouchers to go to a different school.
0: Yeah. And the problem with this is, of course, accountability. Ohio didn't learn its lesson with the ECOT scandal where millions of dollars were squandered and we're not learning it now. We're, We're going to end up in the near future finding scammers, getting the voucher money, not providing an education. It'll take forever to shut them down. Public schools have accountability. They're elected yes. school boards. They're accountable to the residents. They're they're required to operate in the public light. They have to have transparency. There's a long history of that. The charter schools don't. They don't answer to anybody except maybe the parents if the parents are paying attention.
2: And you think about the homeschooling, you know, what's happened in Ohio and was recently in the news about having that Nazi racist homeschool site. And so we're going to give our tax money. So those parents can teach hate to their kids. That just seems insane to me. I, um,
0: yeah, I, I, the, the, I agree. And if, if we're serious about this of creating real competition, then Mike DeWine should insist on the same level of transparency and performance standards that we have for public schools. They should all be on the same playing field. So you can actually compare them and they're not.
2: Right. And, and what could happen if you allow these vouchers is the best and the brightest and the families that are caring the most about their kids' education, they're going to take their kids out and put them somewhere else. And then you leave, you know, these other schools' shelves of themselves because they don't have enough money to, you know, to help the kids that need it most. And I, it's just a really unfair system. And I get that the way we fund schools in this state is not fair, that, like, if you live in a certain district, you get a better education. That's, that's you know, just because you pay more property taxes. That's not equitable. But this, it seems to be making it worse instead of better.
0: Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Hallucinogens like LSD are getting a no look as tools for dealing with a variety of mental issues. Lisa, how does the Cleveland Clinic figure into the research?
3: And the clinic is actually doing clinical trials on lysergic acid diethylamide, also known as LSD, to treat severe anxiety. Study leader, Dr. Brian Barnett, who's with the Cleveland Clinic Center for Adult Behavioral Health, says, actually, things are looking promising so far. This could become FDA approved within the next five years, not only to treat anxiety, but other psychiatry issues, possibly addiction, pain, and neurology issues. So study participants in the Trial, they're given a single LSD dose or a placebo in a controlled clinical setting. So there's a room in Lutheran Hospital that's very cozy with comfy furniture and soothing colors. And the patients, once they're dosed with LSD, they stay in the hospital for 12 hours. So it's in a controlled, you know, hospital environment. They put on eye shades, they lie on the couch, they listen to music. And because this is a double blind, Nobody knows who's getting the placebo or who's getting LSD. And they're having doses that are ranging from 20 micrograms to 200 micrograms. So they're trying to figure out, you know, what the proper dosing would be to treat anxiety, but they're seeing almost immediate results. And he says, uh, Barnett says... We believe we can show that LSD can be administered safely in a hospital environment, but there are, you know, and he said there are changing attitudes because back in the 60s when hippies like me were dropping acid, you know, it got a bad reputation. Um, It's a schedule one substance, but studies are going to change that perception.
0: Yeah, I was surprised at how much red tape they had to go through because it is a controlled substance and they have to have it in a locked refrigerator bolted to the floor. Bolted to the floor. Yeah, I mean, it's just (laughs) crazy. But LSD had its origins in medicine and for 20 years there were experiments being done in this vein and then like you said the 60s hit and it became the the war on drugs and it got stamped right. out but there was a lot of work done years ago that showed this could have real promise because it's not well some people disagree with this but it's not addictive so that no. you, you use this to treat somebody you can break their addictions to other things there's some kind of miraculous stories that you've seen over time about what this I, I've
3: never known anyone to be addicted to LSD. I don't know if you all have ever done it, but it is it's kind of like a 12-hour experience. I mean, you know, depending on the acid that you that you do, and it is a very mind-opening. They say that LSD helps open your consciousness so you can explore things that are in your unconscious that are bothering you and then in larger doses you can have almost a mystical experience and I can attest to that. <laughs> okay.
0: All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. With Cleveland unable to hire enough officers to fill all the open positions, how much overtime did the city pay last year to police, and how much are some officers making, Layla?
1: Reporter Olivia Mitchell tells us that the Cleveland Police Department has 1,271 officers, and that's 227 shy of their budgeted number, which is supposed to be 1,498. And that means that the amount being paid in overtime is surging. And some officers are making more than their bosses. In some cases, they're making more than the mayor. <laughs> so the city spent more than $22 million on extra pay for the department last year. Five years ago, it spent $17.3 million, So that's a jump of nearly 30%. City records show that eight officers made nearly $100,000 or more in overtime. 55 made more than $50,000 in overtime. But this one officer, Carl Lloyd, pretty much topped them all with an hourly salary of 35 bucks. Lloyd made $218,000 last year. More than 137,000, or nearly two thirds of his gross earnings, came from overtime. It appears he might have made that money while being stationed at the airport. It's not quite clear, but that's where he was, uh, where he was located for for a while. Supervisors also made a bunch of money from extra hours. 14 sergeants and lieutenants made more than $50,000 each. Sergeant Michael Schroeder, for example, was one of the top earners in the city. He made. Uh, 240436 bucks, with 145000 of it coming from overtime. Lieutenant John Farnsworth grossed $205,000 with just more than $94,000 coming from overtime. So, you know, Justin Bibb, who incidentally makes a lot less than some of these guys, he wants to cap police overtime at $13 million this year. And, and some, uh, some on city council specifically, are skeptical that they can achieve that without compromising the safety of the city.
0: Yeah, I, I don't see how they can do it either. The, the I Look, I, I got some flack as we name these guys, and we name people like this because tax dollars pay them, it's accountability. But I also don't think it's a negative. These guys have given up their private time to keep the city safe. Yes, they're getting paid for it, but who wants to work that much, right? I mean, the, the, the guy out at the airport to get that kind of money probably worked every day long hours doing the job it's nice that they're willing to stand up in this crisis of not having enough officers
1: yeah and it's not an easy job i mean if you're especially for for the uh the officers who are out on patrol in the neighborhoods i mean it's I uh, i i wouldn't want to trade places with them that's a very difficult Job.
2: And it's hard to do any job like you said almost every day, right? People need time off for their mental health and and I'm glad that you're you're right. I'm glad these people are willing to stand up, but it can't be good for the long-term health of the department. They're just going to get people burnt out who leave And then you have one less officer, right? This is not a long-term solution.
0: No, no, it's not. their, Their pensions are based, though, on the average of their top years of pay. So the guys that did the overtime this year will get benefits for a long time after they retire. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Throughout last week, we published a Midwest etiquette guide, our own version of something New York Magazine published for New York earlier this year. Ours covers a wide array of topics from a Midwestern sensibility. Laura, pick your favorite three.
2: So two of my favorite have to do with the workplace written by two coworkers I had no idea could write so funny. So first, can you take your colleague's lunch out of the communal microwave? This came up when a reporter in our newsroom actually asked standing in front of the microwave when it beeped and she was ready to put her lunch in. So I added it to the list and Lucas d'Aprile who took a bunch of these questions Took it on, got super sarcastic, took it to a higher level, said that regardless, you should get revenge on that coworker by microwaving stuff like a lava lamp to get back at your thoughtless coworker. <laughs> and I, I mean, Chris is, is he, he likes Lucas's take so much that we were talking about maybe starting an advice column with him because he's so funny. But it is like laundry in a dorm. People need to use a microwave. So if you're not there within a minute, like, I think it's okay to put your stuff to the side. Uh, that was the first one. Can you bring chips to a potluck, or is that too cheap? So Yadi Rodriguez took this on. She has organized many a workplace potluck, and she says, "Sure, not just one bag though. Bring a variety, and for goodness sake, don't even open them up and eat a few before you bring them." <laughs> <laughs> Which has happened in the past. Also, you never know when people are going to get hungry, especially at a long party. So don't just take your, you know, your leftovers right after the the lunch. You got to leave them there all afternoon. Um, I'm in love unless you're like talking about something in mayonnaise in the sun, right? Like, leave the, the brownies there for, for people to enjoy. And I, I love that she talked about the $1 box of brownie mix because I'm definitely guilty of doing that in the past. And you're like, what am I going to bring to this potluck? Oh, I know I'll make brownies. Uh, she says that's fine, but don't take them home with you. And then a classic. Can you ever ask if someone's pregnant? No, absolutely not, says Kaylee Remington. It's mortifying if you're wrong. People gain weight for all sorts of reasons. And if you're in the loop enough to know for someone to want to tell you they're pregnant, like wait for them to tell you. You don't <laughs> need to ask.
0: Yeah, I got I got a lot of good feedback about this. People appreciated it. We we took a big collection of it, put it in the plain dealer, and then we have a master post on the site as of I think Saturday that you can read all of the pieces because there's quite a few and we're not. I think there
2: are 45 questions and I got to give a hat tip to Jane Maurice, who are one of our social media experts who took on this whole project of organizing it and posting it and writing the tops for all of them. Like it was a whole newsroom effort. And I am so pleased and excited that people You know, jumped in, volunteered, and really made it their own. I I think it was a super fun idea. And I hope that people liked something a little lighthearted that they could also debate. You know, this isn't, we're not claiming that we have all the answers, but I love that, I love people's takes.
0: Yeah, I I announced this was coming in a uh, column that discussed a discussion we had about exclamation points, for which I'm grateful we're not repeating it, Uh, but people had plenty to say about that. Check it out. It's on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Children make up the smallest percentage of the U.S. population ever. Lisa, how does Ohio figure into that trend?
3: Well, taking a look at the national figures for 2020 in the United States, the percentage of the population that was zero to 17 years in age was 22.1% of the population. That's the lowest in history. That's down 1.1 million kids in 10 years. Here in Ohio, as of 2022, we have 2,562,550 kids in Ohio age zero to 17. That's 21.8% of our population. That's over 29,000 fewer kids than 2020. So it dropped in just two years. It's 168,000 fewer kids than 2018 when they were 23.7% of the Ohio population. Uh, Cuyahoga's decline was one of the highest in the state, 11.8% Decline um, from 2020 to 2020. Uh, I'm sorry, from 2010 to 2020. But nine of the 88 Ohio counties saw an increase of anywhere from a one tenth of a percent in Wood County to 13 and percent in Union County. Um, in Franklin County, Columbus growth uh, kind of drove drove there. So the population of kids in Franklin County is up 8.3 percent
0: yeah the story's loaded with a lot of numbers. What I came away with is I don't quite understand why. Is it just millennials are are waiting much later to have children or and I wish I could figure out why this has dropped so much.
3: I think that's part of it. But, you know, we've had a population decline that's been kind of going on or a birth decline that's been going on, I think, for years. And I just think it's now starting to manifest itself. And, you know, in Japan, they're really suffering, you know, from the lack of children over the last, you know, 20 years. So this is something to keep an eye on.
2: I want to put my plug in for my child care. Project here because that is one issue, I think, that people don't want to have kids because it's so expensive to find care for them, or it's why they're having one kid instead of two kids, right? And this, you're right, Lisa. Other countries are are seeing this so big. I forget what country I was researching in. We're doing we're doing a lot more research, but that they were paying people to have kids and saying you'll never have to pay taxes again if you pay mm-hmm. have four or more children. So this is not just an American thing, but I think we've made it so difficult to raise kids. Mm-hmm. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't look very fun if you're like, you know, staring at the idea that some people have just foregone it.
0: Mm -hmm. Although it is one of the great adventures life has to offer. If money is the reason people aren't doing it, that'd be pretty sad, which is why we're doing your big project. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We made an abrupt switch to a great new comic strip after Dilbert creator Scott Adams went off the deep end with a racist rant. We canceled Dilbert and added a strip called Crabgrass. Our columnist Justice Hill wrote a wonderful profile on the creator. Layla, who is he and what's his story?
1: Well, listeners, if you haven't read Crabgrass yet, you simply must. It's this wonderful new comic strip. It's been syndicated in 125 newspapers now, including The Plain Dealer. It centers around the friendship of two nine-year-old boys in the 1980s, which obviously was an era that was pre-cell phones, pre-social media. So their adventures are pure and delightful. The creator, Tahid Bandia, modeled this relationship after one from his own childhood it's uh, one of the friends, Miles, is black and the other, Kevin, is white. And while race sometimes plays a subtle role in the plot of the comic, it's really secondary to everything else about their experiences together. It's about friends using their imaginations and playing outdoors in the small town during this much, much simpler time. Bondia he grew up in, in Elizabethtown, Kentucky, and and from an early age, he was in love with comics. He loved Spider-Man as a young boy and he showed a real aptitude for illustrations at a really young age. He continued working on his art. He became a graphic designer, but his passion was in comics. So his first attempt at a real comic was called Bells and Whistles. He was in his 20s at the time. He published this comic strip on the internet. He described it as a fantasy world populated with dragons and wizards and, uh, and elves, a lot like Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. But he eventually determined that the fantasy world wasn't really the right space for him creatively. He really struggled to find an audience with that one, and and he was looking for a space that was really exclusively his. So his boyhood friendship struck him as a premise that would really lend itself to a comic strip, so he fiddled with it for a while. When he got laid off in 2018, he decided to make it his full focus. He set out to get syndicated, and at first He got only about two dozen newspapers to sign on, and that really wasn't enough. He thought that was going to be the end of the road for Crabgrass, but the syndicating agency he worked with never stopped pitching it, and eventually more editors became interested. They climbed to 75 newspapers, and then, of course, Dilbert evaporated into a cloud of racist rants by its illustrator, Scott Adams, and Bandia's moment arrived.
0: Yeah, it's a a nice piece about his background and and how he came to to do it. This comic strip is the closest thing we've seen to um, the um, Calvin and Hobbes, which was probably one of the most beloved. It's not Calvin and Hobbes, but it... But it's the same kind of in the kids' minds. It's just very, very nicely done. Good good stuff between the relationship of the parents. Uh, I'm so glad that we have it and that uh, he agreed to talk to justice. Check it out. It's on Cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. Powerful winds ripped through parts of Northeast Ohio a few weeks back, and First Energy tallied up what it took to get power restored to everyone who lost it. How many miles of power lines are we talking about, Laura? And what are some of the other numbers?
2: 60 miles of power lines. That's 313,000 feet, 955 utility poles and 450 transformers. This was in two weeks because of those back-to-back storms. The spokesperson said, we've not experienced a storm like this in at least eight years. I don't remember the first one. I know the April 1st storm was really bad. I was at my sister's house in Bath. Three big trees came down in her backyard. Then I tried to drive back roads to Strongsville to a hockey game, had to turn around at least three times in Summit and Medina counties because of trees blocking the roads. So those were all over the place. But on March 25th, the winds of 70 miles per hour hit the the region that was again what we got on April 1st. And because these storms moved west to east, hitting basically all of First Energy service area in Toledo and then into Pennsylvania and West Virginia, they couldn't bring in other crews from other states because every, you know, everyone was hit hard. So it just took a little longer to get everything back online.
0: And they said that the difference with this storm and other storms is normally wind storms will take down weak trees, mm-hmm. aging trees, dying trees. This one toppled a whole lot of big and healthy trees and that, result in, in, them having to spend quite a bit of time. That's the, the numbers were interesting to read when we asked, how does this compare to previous storms? <laughs> he said, yeah, we haven't been figuring that out. So this is a new thing for us. And we'll but, be able to
2: compare going forward. We talk about this regularly, but with climate change and with worse storms more often, you know, people's power goes out more often. And I was at my sister's house when the the power went out. And I don't think they got it back till late the next, next day um and it, it, so people but where you live chris you said power goes out all the time
0: yeah although we didn't lose anything during those storms i didn't even find any branches outside during those storms so we must have avoided it the i worst think it was
2: it. a little bit south of yeah like you know that strongsville and uh to, to medina and summit counties seemed a lot worse
0: yeah, you know our neighbor has a big gigantic dying tree so whenever we get hit with <laughs> wind stuff comes down and not even that You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, it's official. Browns owners Dean and Jimmy Haslam are part owners of an NBA team that competes with our beloved Cavs. What's that about? Which team, how much did it cost them, and how much of the team do they now own?
3: The Haslam Sports Group purchased a 25% stake in the Milwaukee Bucks of the NBA. And they figure, I don't know that they gave a price, but they figure it's about $800 million based on the $3.2 billion valuation of the team. So uh, they bought the part that was owned by Mark Lasry. Uh, the other co-owners with the Haslams now are Wes Edens and Jamie Dynan. And uh, as part of this purchase, they, of course, got the team. They got Fiserv Forum, where the Bucks play in Milwaukee the team training center at the medical college of Wisconsin, the uh, G league affiliate team, which is the Wisconsin herd. They also got bucks, the bucks gaming team in the, which is a 2K league affiliate. Not really sure what that means. But anyway, the Haslam say they're thrilled to join the NBA and they appreciate the Bucks' loyal fan base and the Bucks' impressive history. They won the NBA championship in 2021. But uh, uh, Jimmy Haslam agreed it will be awkward if the Cavs and the Bucks meet in the playoffs in the Eastern Conference semifinals. He says, I might have to sit in the suite for that game. <laughs>
0: Well, I know a lot of people are paying attention to that eight hundred plus million because the Hasms want money for for the refurbishment or replacement of their football stadium and the people that are involved in that are well, they obviously have plenty of money on their own. Maybe they can kick some of that in uh themselves. Interesting. It'll be it will be odd mm-hmm. if the Cavs play the Bucks. I mean it's it's just People already don't like the Haslams because of Deshaun Watson, because of what they did in the mayor's race. and They had fundraisers for J.D. Vance in Cleveland. This is another reason that people in Cleveland will have to not like them. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for Monday. Good to have everybody back. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thank you for listening.